Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. Hello, everybody. So, Harayim Tovim, if you're in our um, uh, time zone here in California, welcome to those who are here on Zoom and welcome to those who might be joining on Facebook. This is part one of a, a several part class that initially is going to be every other week um, through the end of November. Then just because of weird calendars uh, and some travel, it's going to take a break in December. And then we'll continue it in the beginning of 2022, kind of as long as we want to, in the sense that there's way more material that can be covered, even if we did this weekly for a year. Um, but we'll, we'll see. I don't, I don't have a particular number of sessions set, set in mind. Um, I want to kind of sense of, get a sense of what it's like to study with you and how interested people are in the topic. But it's really great to be um, uh, with you. Uh, if you are here on Facebook by accident, um, I'll kind of give you uh, an, an introduction as to what we're doing and why we're doing it, and then we'll jump into it. Um, so Temple Betham, I'm one of the rabbis, decided to honor and observe 5782, the new Hebrew year, which is a Shemitah year, a year seven in the seven-year agricultural cycle, which, of course, represents a set of laws from the Bible, from the Torah, uh, filtered through the rabbinic tradition, which are still uh, obtaining as practical law for observant Jews in Israel, not so for Jews in diaspora. You can be a fully from Jew living in Los Angeles and have, and you can pay no attention to the laws of Shemitah. And it doesn't mean that you're shirking your responsibility. It means that halachically, the laws of agriculture are only relevant to the earth, the dirt of the land of Israel. Um, that's a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing because, you know, we don't have to add another layer of onerousness to our consumption of Jewish food uh, living in Los Angeles. It's a bad thing because we've lost one of the tethers to one of our most intimate set of laws that that connect us to the earth uh, and to our responsibilities to it. So it's like a good thing when you're off the hook for an obligation and not a good thing when you're off the hook for an obligation. Uh, there's a rabbinic dictum that gadol ha-mitzuveh, miha-enotz mitzuveh, that it's better to be obligated than not obligated. We might think in like the modern idiom, it's better to do something voluntarily than to be, than, than to do it because you have to, right? You can imagine yourself saying that to a child or a student in the rabbinic tradition, it's better to be obligated and fulfill that obligation than to just do something voluntarily and willy nilly. Why? Because if you're doing it because you're obligated, you are committed to a certain system and it's going to keep you honest in that system. And also because you're obeying the Holy one. So we are not obligated as Jews living in the diaspora to observe Shemitah, unless we happen to be visiting Israel um, during that time. But we decided, and this is really all due to Rabbi Dr. Avi Habibi at Temple Betham, that we are obligated to to look closely into it, to understand what the Torah originally was uh, inviting its adherents to do. And we don't have to be looking for labels for whether or not a particular product that we're eating in the stores here is free from any concern of, of violating Shemitah. We don't have to go that far to be uh, informed and inspired by what this um, system is telling us in terms of relationship to the land and the food that comes from the land. So um, th- there's a whole series of things we're doing at Temple Pathan for that. And this is one of them. There were basically three prongs to the series. One was learning, just learning, lear- learning material related to this tradition. And, and I'm teaching one of those classes. One is going to be uh, activism, right? Things that people may want to do in the community and beyond 
uh, inspired or pushed by Jew- Judaism's ecological thrust. And the third is change, change in one's home and change in the institution, right? We're, we're sending out reminders and suggestions for how to green one's home and trying to keep ourselves honest and keeping this institution as green as possible, even the many, given the many challenges. So we're in lean mood here, the learning. Um, with that as an introduction to the introduction, let's do the introduction. So where does our food come from? I would think that most of us on this Zoom uh, and most of us watching on uh, Facebook have lived through the modern era in such a way that even though we're now even more used to an incredible array of um, of, of products from, for, you know, whether whether it's animal products or vegetable products or processed products that we have access to them at all times um, with a click of a of a mouse or by going to our local Trader Joe's, and that has proliferated. And I definitely remember as a child in Connecticut in the '70s and '80s, knowing that certain fruits are only available certain times of the year, um, and that's probably as it should be. Even though it has gotten, you know, more uh, intensely easy. Uh, for most people in our society to access an incredible abundance of foods all the time. Um, even if you go back 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, unless you were living um, in a very small town or farm or farm adjacent, we have gotten used to a culture where where does our food come from? It comes from a store. It comes from a shipment. It comes wrapped in cellophane. It comes uh, you know, printed with an interesting label. It comes via compelling advertising. It comes based on micronutrition that we want to bring into our body, which means that we're processing our food, pun intended, through every prism except the original prism through which our tradition asked us to consider food, which is it comes from the land, right? You know, where my apples come from? They come from the apple aisle in Ralph's, this tremendous pyramid of 17 different kinds of apples, right? Um, maybe, you know, every once in a while we take our children out to what's the Underwood Farms out in the valley and we have them pick strawberries or apples and they get a sense of it but they don't get a sense of the backbreaking labor that's involved in producing it they don't get a sense of the toil it takes the toll it takes on the land to produce it they don't get a sense of 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 what that apple really should cost if everything in the system both the workers and the land were treated properly um they 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 think of it as a fun outing um but not as something that is elemental in terms of our relationship with food um in our tradition, saying a bracha, if we say them and if we have kavanah for saying them, which is not the same thing, I say a blessing before I eat any food, right? I'm going to mug a tea right now. And before I started it, I, I'm pretty sure I remembered to say the bracha, you know, did I have great kavanah for it? Was I fully alert when I was saying it? Was I connected to the creator of the universe while saying it? Probably not as much as they ought to be, but at least I was I was getting, you know, one eighth of the way there by pausing for a microsecond and saying, I don't take it for granted that I'm pouring this elixir down my throat. I'm blessing the creator of the universe for setting up a system that involves many human beings that allows me to taste this and be and be sated, right? So blessings get us part of the way there. Um, but but blessings um don't get us all the way there. And because we live in a modern industrialized food ink era, and because most of us, I, I would guess, although I could be wrong, who are experiencing this conversation are not food insecure. There might be those who are food insecure, by the way, um, because there are more food insecure around, around around us than we're sometimes aware of. But my my working assumption 
is that most of us have not known a day of real hunger in our lives and are not concerned about whether um, you know our, our next meal will come. We might be you know you know we might choose to spend frugally when we go out to a restaurant, but we're not concerned about whether or not there'll be sufficient calories for us to eat. Um, we have a an insouciant relationship with our food. Uh, we don't worry about it, which means that we have a too disconnected relationship with the source of that food and how it got there. And so Shemitah is a great opportunity to to dig to dip back into that and and have it inform the in the intent that we bring to nearly every uh, food experience um, and reconnect we urban or even suburban and even in the exurbs in America, you might be in an exurb, but you're not really connected to the sweat of the land. And this will reconnect us a little bit to what it means to live on an earth with limited resources that has to be squeezed in order to produce the exact fruits and vegetables that we want um, and which the Torah knew even before the industrial revolution can run out. The earth can run out and we don't have to look in too many places, even in today's headlines, to know that the earth sometimes says, Adkan Batulo, right? I, I can, which is the Aramaic for, I can go this far, but no further. Sometimes the ocean tells us that when there are oil spills and the ocean says, you can, you can pillage um, the natural environment to a certain point, but at some point it's going to become a disaster for me, meaning me, the land. And if it's a disaster for me, it's a disaster for you. Um, I decided as the text I wanted to study in this um, course with you is a seminal text by Rav Cook, which we'll get into in a second, called Shabbat Haaretz, and we'll get into that in a second as well. And um, this has been a delightful preparation. Uh, I love preparing for my classes, um, whether it's my weekly Rashi class or a class that I'm teaching on Shabbat afternoon, because I went into the rabbinate to study, to study material. But I'm rarely studying outside of my rather wide comfort zone, meaning I, I don't mind saying that I'm, I have a pretty pretty uh, like my breadth of, of topics and texts that I have comfort in is, is pretty broad, but this stretched me in a comfortably uncomfortable way or an uncomfortably comfortable way. Uh, why did it stretch me? I don't teach that much about the, the agricultural laws. I, I'm, in, I'm moved by them. And I think that we are doing our, our generation a disservice by not um, knowing enough about it, but it's not an area in which I've given many classes in my life. Um, I love the writings of Ralph Cook, but he's hard to understand. And we'll get more into that later. Uh, and so it was a, uh, like a, a, a properly stressful delight to immerse myself in some of these ideas so that I could distill them into ones that hopefully will be digestible, pun intended to all of you. And as I did the preparation, I realized that uh, particularly because this is not a one-off, this is hopefully a series that many of you who are listening will hear many parts of that. It was worth doing a slightly extended um, introduction, not only to the topic, but to Rav Cook himself, because he is a, a personage, a character who's worth getting to know and understanding a little bit more about him helps us understand what is informing the work that we're going to be studying. And again, the name of the work that we're studying is called Shabbat Haaretz, um, which that in of itself is an interesting um, phrase, which we'll look into. Um, but let's talk about Rav Cook himself. Okay. Some of this might be repeat for some of you, but um, unless you have PhDs in Rav Cook, it's not a bad reminder. Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, uh, born in uh, what is probably now Latvia, although I don't think it was the it was the um, nation of Latvia at the time, 1865. Then he grew up in the famed Lithuanian 
yeshiva uh, culture, right? The when you think about the, the the places of intense Jewish learning for traditional Jews in the last few hundred years, the, the yeshivas of Lithuania um, stand out as a bright spot in terms of intensity and academic focus and the, the Jewish minds that want to study there. Whether or not we share the same ideology, you know, we modern conservative Jews is a different question. But it's, it's, it's impossible not to um, be admiring of the culture of the Lithuanian yeshiva, particularly in the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, sorry, the 19th and early 20th centuries, um, and their descendants to this day, mostly in the land of Israel. Uh, he went to the yeshiva in Volozhin, which um, was uh, noted um, because the, for many reasons, the, at one point, the head of the yeshiva was the Nitziv, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, who is an author of many works that we use a lot of Temple Betham, including his commentary on the Torah called Ha'amekdavar, uh, Rav Cook was known as an Ilui, and Ilui is someone who is preternaturally wise and uh, and able when it comes to rabbinic texts. Right, just could you know, you know ma- master the Talmud as a teenager and know it nearly by heart. He became a prize student of the Nitziv. They became very close. In fact, the Nitziv was known to say at one point, um, even even given all of the many many students that went through his yeshiva who went on to lead Jewish communities, many of whom obviously were struck down by the Shoah. He said something like, if in all of my time leading that yeshiva, we had succeeded in educated on, educating only him, meaning had only Rav Cook, who's going to become Rav Cook, uh, been our, uh, our graduate, Dayenu, that would have been sufficient. That would have been enough feathers in our cap if we had produced Rav Cook. Uh, he went and apprenticed as a, as a Rav with the rabbi of Panovich. Panovich is in Lithuania. Panovejis, the thing is how you pronounce Lithuanian. It's between, it's on the road in between Vilna, which is now Lithuania, and Riga, which is Latvia. I'll put an interesting parenthesis in here because I had not known about this connection between Rav Cook and Panovich. Panovich is where my grandmother, the only one of my grandparents who was born in Europe, was born and grew up. Uh, she lived there until she was about 11, before they came to the States in the late 20s. Um, it was also famed, not quite as famous as Volusian, but close, uh, a famed yeshiva that essentially got uh, recreated brick by brick in B'nai, brick by by brock in B'nai Brak, uh in Israel. Um, and I once had an opportunity when I was traveling through Eastern Europe with USY groups in the mid nineties uh, to visit Panovich. I'll just tell you a story because it it, it 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 leavens this experience a little bit. Uh, my grandmother at the time, my Safta, was still alive. And I told her that I was going through, I saw on the map that we would be driving from Vilna to Riga that day and that we were going right through the town of Panovich. It was not on our itinerary, but I saw it. I was looking at an old atlas in our house. And I asked her if we have a chance to stop, which I didn't know if we would. Um, and I wouldn't be able to call her from there because this was you know, pre-cell phone, pre-internet. This was 1994. What did she remember about growing up there? Because she was like nine or 10 when she left. And she says that she remembered she lived by a bridge and that uh, and by an embankment down into the, the valley where the river is. And then on warm days, she used to run down the embankment and they would wash their clothes in the river. That That's as concrete a memory she could give me. So on that long drive from Vilna to Riga, I told the driver uh, to take us to what he thought might be one of the old bridges in town, just as a guess. And we got off the bus, I and the translator, and we basically tapped on the shoulder of the first old person that we saw who might have had memories. And um, I asked 
the translator to ask this person um, to, I, I pointed to this like grassy embankment on the, on the side of a bridge um, by the river. And I said, what do you remember about that era before the war? And I can picture the scene as it was yesterday. The old woman looked over there, pointed, says that's where the Jews lived. Um, so it was a really powerful experience for me to possibly have been standing um, right near where my grandmother had grown up. And, and Rav Cook, on his way from being a student in Velazhin to eventually becoming a rabbi in pre-state Palestine, had a stop in Panovich. Uh, and may even, if, it, if the years work out, may even have been there simultaneous to when my great-grandfather, my softest father, who was ordained as a rabbi in Panovich before he moved to the States and became a rabbi in Boston, they may have spent time in that building together, which I find interesting. Um, Rav Cook was known rather iconoclastically, and I mentioned this in my, my Yom Kippur sermon, as a vegetarian, right? Uh, traditional observant from Judaism is meat-centric. The temple service is meat-centric. Uh, you know you, you know the drill, kreplach and, and, and chicken soup uh, and, and ribbonous. And Rav Cook pushed against that for reasons that I think were ahead of his time, but maybe they were not ahead of his time. They were actually linking back to earlier ideas in the Jewish tradition that were suppressed over time. He... Um, wrote about, he lived a vegetarian life and he wrote about it uh, and he tried to inspire unsuccessfully many of his followers to follow in that way. But it says something about his connection to, um, to, to, to the universe that he sensed that there was something, I don't think he was doing it for personal health reasons, but there was, there was something untoward about the production and the consumption of meat, either as it related to the experience of the animals or even as it related to the experience of the land itself. 1904, so he's just under 40 years old, he was invited to come to Yafo, Jaffa, to be the rabbi of the fledgling Jewish community there, right? So this is within the first couple of years that Tel Aviv, which is obviously the new Jaffa, is being built just a couple of miles up the road. He's invited to become a rabbi in Yafo. Uh, Yafo has had a Jewish community, you know, uninterrupted for centuries. Um, the group that invited him, interestingly, was a group called the Bnei Moshe. They were a semi-Karaite group of Jews, by which I mean they were not full Karaites. Karaites are those who live by the laws of the Torah and essentially rejected rabbinic interpretation and modernization of the tradition. Uh, the Bnei Moshe were somewhere in between. They, their, their Jewish practices were not entirely in line with what had evolved as mainstream Ashkenazi Orthodoxy in Eastern Europe, nor were they strict Karaites but they had a certain amount of standing in pre-state Palestine and he was invited to be their rabbi. That's how we got to the land of Israel. Interestingly, he served there for a few years, was on a trip to London, I don't know why, when World War I broke out and he couldn't get back to the land of Palestine. Um, so he spent, he spent a, uh, a significant amount of time really through World War I in Europe. And here's another interesting potential connection between Rav Cook and my ancestors. Uh, in 1916, he ended up serving as the rabbi of the great, the Spitalfields Great Synagogues. What Spitalfields? Spitalfields is an area in uh, East London that uh, was known as uh, a, a part of the city through which different immigrant groups uh, came in over the centuries. And the Spitalfields Great Synagogue, this is when I learned this in my research, it, it, it brought something full circle very interestingly. So let me take a step back. So many of you know that I had a sabbatical about four years ago, and we spent it in uh, most of it in Oxford, England. And at one point I came into London and I had heard about a 
fascinating tour called the Alternative Walking Tour of London. It was basically going to East London, not like downtown West Side area, West 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 End, um, and looking at London through the prism of street art and graffiti. Fascinating, amazing tour. What I had no idea about is that where this tour was, was this neighborhood called the East End um, or Spitalfields. It's also called Brick Lane. Many, some of you may have been there. And it's it's been a, a part of the city through which, as I said, said before, immigrant communities have come in. And our tour guide pointed to this grand building um, on, like a picture, on, on the corner of Brick Lane and something else um, that was at the time a mosque. And the uh, for the Bangladeshi, I think, uh, Muslim community there. And the tour guide said that, that it's, it's believe, it's thought to believe that that building is the only building on the planet that has in, in the same building that has not been raised to the ground, has served as a synagogue and a church and a mosque. There have been locations where those three have, have appeared in the same place, but not the same building. It was a Huguenot church. Um, when the French Huguenots came over to London to escape persecution in the 1780s, 1790s, 1810s, it became the Spitalfields Great Synagogue when the Jewish community started coming um, as the pogroms were getting worse in Eastern Europe. And then there were really no Jews left in that neighborhood anymore. And now it's a very um, dense Muslim neighborhood. And now it's a Bangladeshi mosque. So um, that is where Ralph Cook served for a few years in World War One. I. I had no idea when I was on that tour four years ago. It's next to this famous Brick Lane, which is known amongst many things to having two of the oldest bagel places uh, in uh, in London. They've been open for like 120, 130 years. They were apparently opened by brothers or, or cousins who didn't get along, two Jewish guys who opened them. And they're still, they're still there. One is called like the Bagel Place, one is called the Bagel Factory, something like that. Um, and why is it interesting? And I know I'm on a digression, but bear with me, because on the other side of my family, my mother's father, he was born in New York, but his father uh, escaped Poland, came first to the New World before sending for his family. And before he got to uh, New York, he lived in this part of um, uh, of London for a few years. They have correspondence from him. I went to visit the address that he uh, li- that they knew they had for him. The address no longer exists, but I knew where I was in the street and it's right in that neighborhood. So it may be that my uh, father's father's mother's father studied at the Panovich Yeshiva when Rav Cook was there. And it may be that my mother's father's father uh, was going to shul at the Great Spitalfield Synagogue in London when Rav Cook was there. Okay, that's the end of the Klickfeld connection between uh, me and Rav Cook. 1919, he goes back to Palestine. And he became the chief rabbi of the city of Jerusalem, chief Ashkenazi rabbi. Two years later, uh, his renown is spreading and becomes the chief Ashkenazi rabbi of Palestine. And that's when his reputation really begins to grow, not without some controversy. Um, when we modern traditional Jews speak about Rav Cook, we speak about him with adulation. This man who was somehow able to be so firmly rooted in the tradition. He was an unapologetically from observant Jew, but who understood that the world was changing, you know, where he would have plotted himself in the Tevye story, like, like change is a real thing. And he somehow found a way to do this without any judgment for those Jews who were uh, living differently. He famously had a house on Rehob Yafo, Jaffa Road in Jerusalem, where um, one of the doors was, um, opening up onto Mea Sharim, the ultra-Orthodox enclave, because that was what he looked like. That's where he davened. That's what his life was like. But the other 
door, if you can picture where Jaffa Road is, was opening up to New Jerusalem. And so the house like straddled the block and it's Meir Sharim over here and Ben Yehuda Street over there. I mean, Ben Yehuda Street circa 1920, but still where the secular Zionist settlers were coming to make a new life. And he famously, and at risk to his reputation, defended in religious terms the secular settlers who were performing the mitzvah of Yeshub Haaretz. Right? In other words, he didn't say they, they are apikorsim who also happened to be the land of Israel. He would, he would raise up the notion of a secular settling of the land of Israel, state of Israel as performing a mitzvah, even if it, they weren't motivated by mitzvah. Um, and he was uh, a rather unique voice, and there was a controversy. There were many letters that were published um, against him as he was trying to um, establish himself. So we venerate him, but the the contemporaneous um, yeshiva world, even though he was from it, rejected him. It was not quite as intense as you know the Maimonidean controversy where Maimonides was not accepted in his time because of his philosophical urges, but it was pretty severe. Listen to this. Um, uh, this was like a like a, a a fatwa, if you'll excuse the term, that was put out amongst the Haredi community about uh, Rav Kook. We were astonished to see and hear gross things foreign to the entire Torah. And we see that which we feared before his coming here, that he will introduce new forms of deviance that our rabbis and ancestors could not have imagined. It is to be deemed a sorcerer's book. If so, let it be known that it is forbidden to study, let alone rely on all his nonsense and dreams." That was written about Rav Cook as he was trying to establish himself. And he was already the chief rabbi of Palestine. He wasn't like an up and comer. And still he was not, he was being uh, knocked down by those who thought his ideas were dangerous. You know, it was kooky, uh, kooky, his name was Cook, kooky, 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 kooky uh, vegetarian who was willing to hang out with secular Jews. Too dangerous. Um, uh, rabbi Aaron Rokeach, who is the Belzer uh, uh, Rebbe of the Belzer Hasidim, said, Know that the rabbi from Jerusalem, Cook, may his name be blotted out. That's Yamach Shemo. That's, that's usually reserved for Amalek and Hitler. Is completely wicked and has already ruined many of our youth in trapping them with his guileful tongue and impure books. That's, that's a heck of a screed, which meant that Rav Cook was onto something, right? He was, he was recognizing the soft spot in the unchanging Haredi world who were, you know, uh, mostly students of the Khatam Sofer, Rabbi Moshe Sofer of Pressburg, who famously said, um, Ein chidush, um, Ein Torah. you can do no innovations in Torah. We're going to preserve this exactly as it always has been, even though there was lots of natural change over time and as it always will be. I give you this long introduction because I want you to know a, a sense of, of where Rav Cook stood in the, in the realm of Jewish intellectual history. His command of our inherited tradition was almost beyond compare. His fluency, his love for it, his love for those texts, um, you can't possibly imagine. And he was playful. And he wasn't just paskening halacha, telling you like, you know, what, what the ruling is. He wanted to have people really engage in what Torah originally was supposed to be about and have it be applied to today's reality. Sounds like Jews like me and you. He has many legacies. In some ways, he's quoted more by Jews like me, rabbis like me, than by the Jews that he was more like of his age. Um, there are um, 
you know, the, 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 the modern Haredi community probably doesn't spend a whole lot of time studying Rav Cook, but he had a tremendous leg- legacy. Some of you know, Merkaz Harav, the, the, um, the, the center of the Rav, which is an enormous yeshiva world and, um, uh, really civilization that it's in uh, Kiryat Moshe. When you come in through, um, Jerusalem, right past the, um, the bus station, it's right near there. Tremendous yeshiva and, and their influence on the Jewish world is not just on the students that they, we're there, but they're publishing house, Merkaz Harav Cook, an enormous amount of my library, including, I wonder if you have books you see behind me. Uh, yeah, <laughs> look at that coincidence. So um, just a random book, Hegyone Halacha, um, Insights into, um, into Jewish Law. You see this insignia. This is a famous insignia in the world of Jewish books. M- uh, Mossad Harav Cook is the Institute for Rav Cook, and they produce uh, an enormous amount of important Jewish works, and every conservative and probably reform rabbi and reconstruction, reconstructionist rabbi has on their shelf not only Rav Cook's writings, but writings that have come from the publishing house that's connected to his legacy. Um, another aspect of his legacy is that his his work his writings are delicious and inscrutable. I think that's the best way of saying it. It's delicious because you know you're reading something that is dense. And, and rich in illusions and so wrapped up with, with the Torahs and the Talmuds uh, breadth and variety. And he didn't write books per se. A lot of his writings are like, were, were collected by students of his that were writing them down on little scraps of papers. He was saying them and they were after the fact edited, which means they don't have beginnings, middle and endings. Um, and sometimes even if you're someone who is rather good in Hebrew and rather good in traditional texts, um, it's a hard to, 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 to understand them. And that's part of his legacy. Meaning it's, it's like a, it's like a beautiful and sometimes frustrating as all get out challenge to sink your teeth into a Rob Cook text. And we're going to get to that today and in the rest of the class. Um, just uh, in case this wasn't obvious, I'm giving you a long introduction, but we're going to get to at least one text today. And then the rest of the teaching is going to be about the material, not about Rob Cook. Um, this book that he writes, um, Shabbat Haaretz, that we are going to be looking into, was written in 1909, right? So if you think back to the history I gave you, he'd already been uh, invited to the land of Israel, which means he's rekindled his own connection to the very dirt that is the subject of the laws of Shemitah. And let's think about what's happening in 1909 in the land of Palestine. It's the middle of the second Aliyah. The second Aliyah was known um, primarily uh, for uh, Jews who are coming from deep in the Russian Empire and Jews from Yemen, not the Jews coming from the urban centers. The second Aliyah, for the most part, these are it's a generalization, but it's a pretty accurate generalization, were Jewish people of the land, the land of the Russian countryside or the land of the Yemeni desert area, who were being pulled by the centripetal force of Zionism and also to, to go away from persecution back to the land of Israel. But these were land people, right? For the most part, there were plenty of times in, in the uh, immigration to Israel that city people, that Warsaw people and Krakow people and Odessa people were coming to Palestine. But this was an era which land people, Jewish land people were coming back to the land of Israel. Um, and therefore, and also because there was not a whole lot of industry in the land of Israel, Palestine, anyway, they came from the land and they went to the land. So whether they were from or not, the biblical texts and obligations that had been theoretical in the Jewish world for centuries started to become very important. 
right? So if they were individually personally from, all of a sudden the farming they had been doing in Russia or in Yemen now was overlaid with a series of obligations and particulars that Jews had not been studying that closely because it wasn't, um, it was only theoretical. Uh, the Rambam, Maimonides, I mentioned before, was in some ways lampooned in the 12th century when he wrote his masterful Mishneh Torah, his, his Code of Jewish Law, because unlike the other codes that were coming out around that time and subsequently, which did not include material that was no longer practical, you open up the Shulchan Aruch written in the 1570s, there's nothing in there about sacrifices. There's nothing in there about about uh, things that had become obsolete. The Rambam included everything, which means his book is twice as long as what Jews needed at the time to be practical. All these laws had been not in, in, in like, they weren't rejected. They were just in, not, not in use because the Jews weren't living in the land of Israel. All of a sudden those laws become significant again. And even if you came to the land of Israel and you weren't personally from, you were joining a Jewish community, not a homogeneous Jewish community, but a Jewish community that was trying to produce a, Jew, a Jewish life, Jewish culture, and Jewish observance that was sensitive to the Torah's obligations about the land. And if you were part of that process, you had to be somewhat knowledgeable about that as well, even if it wasn't personally interesting to you. So he, I, I, this, this is supposition. I don't know this for a fact, because he doesn't say a whole lot about why he writes this then, but I'm wondering if he's reading the tea leaves and he's recognizing the, the, either the needs and curiosities of the Jews that are now his subjects or what he thinks ought to be their curiosities about what their tradition has to say about this new landed Judaism in the land of Israel. And he writes Shabbat Haaretz in 1909. Um, there are several parts of this book called Shabbat Haaretz. One of them is the Haktama, the introduction. That is the part that we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking very little, if anything, about in the actual content. It's his Haktama, his introduction, which is basically his philosophical musings about Shemitah, the sabbatical year, and Yovel, Jubilee, which is the year 50 after seven sabbatical cycles, um, and also how the concepts um, of Eretz Yisrael relate to Am Yisrael. So when the laws of Shemitah were produced by the Torah um, and then uh, ratified by the rabbis of the Talmud, the notion of Eretz Yisrael was dominant. We were still in the early gestational stages of becoming Am Yisrael, the nation of Israel. In 1909, it's the reverse. There's definitely an Am Yisrael, Am Yisrael Chai. It's spread out, but there's definitely a notion of a, of a Jewish peoplehood. But, but there had been dormant a connection to Eretz Yisrael as a practical matter, as an as a, as a, I ache to be in the land of Israel, sure. But as a practical matter of living, of a significant percentage of Jews alive living in the land of Israel, that had lied dormant. So he wanted to bring out how the concepts of Eretz Yisrael inform um, what it means to be part of Am Yisrael. And he said very clearly, and we'll see some of that in the text, that there were certainly certain spiritual elements of our people, of being a Jew, that could be expressed only through those mitzvot who are tied to the land. This is about as judgmental as Rav Cook would get. He wasn't poo-pooing those who didn't live there, but he was saying there are elements to the Jewish identity that cannot be fully realized or recognized unless you're adding these set of obligations onto them. In other words, he would be saying to us, live in Los Angeles if you want. But know that you are somewhat spiritually impoverished because Shemitah doesn't obligate you. And the laws of truma, of giving certain percentage of our produce uh, to the priest, do not obligate you. And that's even if you are a farmer in the Central Valley. 
It's not until you, 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 you close this, um, this, this circuit and that you bring all of these laws into your active Jewish living that you get to fully live out the Torah's expectations of the spiritual person. That's the part that we're going to be spending most of the time in, in our study. Second part of the book is the Mavo, which is, um, it's interesting. Mavo can also mean an introduction, but here it's actually the body part of the text. 15 chapters of Halacha. Rav Cook was not primarily a halachist. He doesn't write codes of Jewish law, but he was a halachic Jew. Um, and he's writing the laws of Shemitah. This is a practicum for the Jews farming the Hula Valley or the, or the fields outside of Yafo, how to do it on this seventh year. Um, he writes it as a commentary on Maimonides' Hilchot Shemitah. So in Maimonides' Rambam's Mishneh Torah, he has a whole book of the laws of Shemitah. And this part of Rav Kook's Shabbat Aretz is a commentary on um, Hilchot Shemitah. And then the um, the fourth part of the third slash fourth part of the book is called Kuntris Acharon, the final document or the final uh, manuscript. And there are little slips of, of individual piskedin, individual halachic um, rulings he has made that didn't make it into the central piece of his material. Uh, Rav Cook was known to be mostly lenient, which does not mean he wasn't careful. He was just, if you could lean lenient or stringent on a particular halacha, but he was not a member of the Chumra of the Week Club. A Chumra is a stringency. He wanted the tradition to be obligatory but accessible. Um, he wanted to lean most into meaning and less into stringency, but he had a couple of notable stringencies. I'm going to just share one with you that appears in the book. I'm going to give it to you in Hebrew and then in English. It's good to be, it's such an interesting use of language, and we're going to, you'll see how interesting his language is in a second, but orer means to, to awaken. It's, it's appropriate to awaken yourself. It doesn't say it's prohibited. It's appropriate to awaken yourself to the fact that you shouldn't fill up your Havdalah um, goblet with wine of Shvi'it, of wine that was produced in the Shemitah year, because wine that is produced in the Shemitah year um, uh, cannot be, cannot be wasted. Yoter um, mimirato, more than, then the, then you really are going to need for the ritual. Um, lesiman bracha, for the sake of bracha, why? Shenishpach um abed peroch fi'it. Because what happens with Havdalah, right? What, what, at every Havdalah ceremony in the world, unlike at Kiddush, where you down, you're supposed to down the glass, you're supposed to at least drink Rove Kos, you take a sip of the Havdalah, you pour out the, uh, the juice of the wine, you put the candle in it, even though you're doing it for the sake of the mitzvah, you're wasting produce. Right. If you're being a conservationalist, you're wasting produce. Right. And so the Rav Cook says, don't waste Shvi'it produce. Shvi'it, which is a, the, 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 the biblical term is Shemitah. The rabbinic term is Shvi'it, the seventh year. And it's scarce in the seventh year because you can only collect what is naturally producing. You can't cultivate it. So it's, it's, it's a luxury. It's, it, it's, it's a diamond. So it, you, you only wear a diamond or you only wear gold if you're going to be able to, 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 to make use of it fully and to enjoy it. Don't waste something that is so scarce. So he says, don't try not to fill up your Havdalah cup um, with Shemitah wine, because most of it will not be consumed by you. And what an insult to the land that is trying to produce enough for you, for you to subsist. Don't pour that onto the ground. One of his few notable Chumras. Okay, 43 minutes of the intro. What we're going to do in the class, which we're going to do for 17 minutes more today, and then um, 
all of the following classes. We're going to do a few sections of close reading of the text each week. Uh, we're not going to get through all of it. There's no way. One day, perhaps, if we, if we do this for years, we will. Um, I want you, where, whether your background in Hebrew is strong or not, I want you to reckon with the challenges of getting through Rav Cook material. And you'll see even in the, in the um, translations that I'm either going to give myself or using other people's translations, how hard it is to produce Rav Cook's Hebrew into English. I once took a whole week-long class. I was in a rabbinic seminar. I was held in New Jersey by one of my teachers, Rabbi Ed Feld, who you may know because he's the editor of our Lev Shalem Machsor and Sidur. And Rabbi Ed Feld is a scholar, right? I say this with no false humility compared to my myself. What Rav, Rabbi Feld knows about Hebrew and the tradition dwarfs what I'll ever know in my lifetime. And it was wonderful to watch him struggle, not, not out of any kind of a schadenfreude. It was just wonderful and validating to see him struggle to, to work with three lines of Rob Cook's text because it is so rich and dense. Um, there is a new um, translation of not all of Shabbat Haaretz, but just the introduction to Shabbat Haaretz that we're going to be working with. It's, it looks like this. It was produced by, the, um, by Chazon. It's actually available on Safaria. Uh, believe it or not, for free. And it was um, produced and translated by Rabbi Julian Yedidia Sinclair, who's a rabbi in Israel. Um, listen to, uh, he's, uh, he, he's trained as a rabbi, but mostly he's an Israeli green high tech. Listen to what he says about what it's like. Um, and then this from a true scholar to work through Rav Cook's text. Among the challenges of working through a Rav Cook's text, his sentences are often very long. The syntax can be confusing. The style and vocabulary are influenced by a genre of 19th century bell letters that is long out of fashion. The subject matter is frequently esoteric or mystical. He quotes from the whole repertoire of Jewish traditional sources, usually without attribution, I'm putting in here, which means that you have to go searching for it yourself to find out where it comes from end of my ed- ed- uh, editing. And occasionally the thought that he's expressing remains elusive, even after repeated rereading of a sentence or passage. I wanted you to hear that because we're going to, we're going to break our teeth over a few lines of text each week. And we still might not have certainty when we're done, if we're fully understanding it, but we're going to be moved by it, even if we understand it completely. Okay. Let me pause here. Uh, questions or comments before we jump into the first chunky text. Thank you for indulging me in this extended intro. Questions, comments? If, you, if you're if you on the Zoom, I'm not necessarily seeing you because I'm looking at uh, the speaker view. Let me go down here. Raise your digital hand if you have a question or comment. Go in once, twice. Okay. So now I'm going to share the screen with you because um, we're going to look at the first text. Second, let me just separate it out. Oh, I'm also going to give you the text. Uh, this is a text sheet that's going to grow. Um, so it'll always be the same. I think it's always going to be the same link. Um, so in, in case it's easier for you to look at it on a different screen rather than me sharing it, I'm going to actually send it to you. So one second. Um, okay. So I'm going to put the text link in the chat. You can open it, but I'm also going to share the screen. Okay, so either one way or another, you're looking at it together. This is, again, the beginning of the beginning of Shabbat Aretz. It's the beginning of the Haktama uh, of this book. And let's get right into it. Um, Rebecca, can I put you on the spot? Do you want to read? Um, and, 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 and this is hard stuff, but I still want us to, to, to work with it. Can you read the first, um, the first 
few paragraphs. I'll, I'll, I'll stop you here and there. Okay, I'll try. Shabbat Haaretz Hakdama. Nashay Pratim al Erech Hashmita Gahuvel Bechayi Israel Bichlal. Okay, period. Already, already in the first few words, I'm going to posit he said something really interesting, and these are not throwaway words. And I'm going to break it. I'm going to break it down. Why? And then ask you ask a question. Rashi Prakim. That means like a parak is a chapter. Rosh is a head. Like it's translated here by Rabbi. Um, this is his, this part is his translation. For the most part, I did a couple of tinkering by Rabbi. Um, what did I say? Anyone? Julian Sinclair as summary. It's fine. Like it, headings, maybe. Al Erech Hashmita. Erech is translated here as value. Right? Why is that interesting? Why does what, what, Rav Cook does not choose his words lightly? What what word did he not say by saying erech or value, or what word could he have said there? Bonnie? What laws? Laws, right? Before Rav Cook, no one thought of shmita as erech, or if they did, not widely. Shmita are laws; they're commandments in the Torah that come out in the Book of Leviticus and that are re- re- repeated in the Book of Varim on how to do stuff values emerging from it it's such a in and of its um in in one word it's it's a radical statement they say i'm going to present to you what i think this means not only how to do it what are we supposed to be understanding about our obligations as a jew through the value system that shmita represents and not only shmita but yovel and then israel right in the life of israel the life of the jewish people right not only in the agricultural life not only in the business life, not only in the halachic life, he is from the, in the first line of his intro generalizing this, which means when Shemitah is speaking to us, it's Shemitah is speaking to us on a grand level. If you're thinking about this, just in terms of whether or not the particular grain item you're eating that, that day is, is kosher for the laws of Shemitah, you're missing out. Okay. The next part, like, I have so much admiration for Rabbi Sinclair because I, I, I trust his translation. It's so hard to know how he got that from these words, but let's play with it. Bichlal. Should I go on? goes together. If I go really literally, what where Rabbi Sinclair is trying to do on the left is to try to get you the sense of this of the sentence. But something like on the, the value of Shemitah and Jubilee in the life of Israel, Bichlal, generically, Uvitriat Uma, and also specifically in the resurrection or the continued vitality of the nation, Uma. And then a phrase, Ha'aretz Vahatora is that is, are we supposed to think of this as triat hauma baharat vatorah, like the regeneration of the people and the land and the Torah? Or is haaretz vatorah kind of standing by itself as him just kind of invoking the land and the Torah? It's hard to know. Baor Hashem in God's light, who is the source of all everlasting life. Something like the material I'm about to share with you is integral. It's ikar as opposed to tafel. It's central as opposed to peripheral. It doesn't matter if you're a farmer. It doesn't matter if you live in Odessa or you live, uh, or you live in, in the, on the fields of Jaffa. We're going to learn something about what it means to be an um, a nation from these laws. And we would be lesser off if we didn't, didn't have it together. Okay. That's parak aleph, right? Or line aleph. 
And now um, parts two and three go together. He's going to quote um, a verse from the book of Samuel. And then he's going to quote a text from the Zohar. So, uh, Rebecca, you're still on. Okay. Okay. Second book of Samuel, seventh chapter, line 23. If you're a shul goer, these words might be evocative for you. Like, I know them from somewhere, but I'm not sure where. I always have that. Like, you, you hear a phrase, you're like, oh, that's familiar, not sure where. It's like when you see an act, like a bit character actor and TV show, you're like, what movie was that guy in, right? Uh, I'm listening to a great podcast these days called The Rewatchables. It's Bill Simmons and his friends basically spending an hour and a half on their most wonderful rewatchable movies. And they're kind of going through them all these different angles and they have categories. And one of the categories is the that guy award, right? Who is the person in this movie who wins the that guy award? Because you don't know the person's name, he or she, but you realize, oh, right. It was in that episode in West Wing in 2003. And that's why it looks familiar. So is a that guy award of liturgy. It's Shabbat Mincha afternoon. In the first paragraph of the of the part of the liturgy that's unique to Shabbat afternoon, and you might know it by two. Mi ka'amcha ka'amcha Yisrael goyechad baretz. What's the pshat? Um, who is like your people Israel? Who, which is a goyechad baretz, a singular nation on earth. Look what what Rav Cook is going to do to the uh, Zohar's read of that. Go ahead, goyechad. Oh, okay. So right now, he's, this is not, this is not, um, uh, Rav Cook, this is Zohar. Okay. Can you translate that either by reading it or by working with it? Uh, one people in the land, uh, uh, of course, in the land, they are one people. Right. <laughs> and by inference, if they're not on the land, they're not a one a one people and the oneness here is singularity uniqueness not 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 numerically right it's the same way that most people think that we completely misunderstand the shema we're not saying that god is one as opposed to two we're saying that god is is all united god is singular and unique and all-encompassing so when do we wear the crown of goyachad ba'aretz which is to suggest that if we are not ba'aretz whatever we might we might be goy but we're not goyachad. We're missing something of the achdut, of the oneness, of the unity, of the singularity of the Jewish people if we're not on the land and ensconced in the land. You can imagine this as a, you know, as a great sermon to give in the, in the great synagogue of Krakow in 1880 to send people back to the land of Israel. And now this is the really rough Aramaic of the Zohar, Ima. Ima iklum echad velo imun bilchodehu. Right. So ima, with it, meaning when we are on the land, ikrun, from the root kari, to be called like echrun lecha, we are called one, and again, one as singular as opposed to one as not two. Velo inun pilchudaihu, but we don't get that moniker if we're separated from it, right? So this is from the Zohar, which is the classic mystical text um, um, from the book of Ayakra. Okay, so if we put it all together, he says, hey folks, glad you're reading we're going to learn about laws of Shemitah, which is saying something uh, elemental about what it means to be a part of the Jewish people. I've quoted you a line from the book of Samuel, which, is, which in its pshat is just kind of a, a rhetorical question. Oh, who is like you, the Jewish people? But I'm going to link it to the Zohar text that says, Goyachad Ba'aretz is telling us, is, is, is telegraphing 
the story a little bit. That's only when you are Ba'aretz that you can earn the category of Goichad. And now in section four, we get to Rav Cook's um, synthesis of what he's already shared. And he's already shared a lot in a few, in a few short words. And then we'll get through most of this uh, in the next five minutes and we'll pick up the, ne- uh, the next time. Okay, Hashmita. Hashmita v'ayovel pazmanim mitjachasim zelazeh Okay, so pause right there. Uh, again, I so much respect for Rabbi um, uh, Sinclair, and, it's, and and there are also many ways of translating this, right? So I I, I honor him, and I, I want to trans. I want you to see the translation on the left, and then we can also work through it phrase by phrase. Shmita and Yovel Bazmanim. It's hard to know if that's a full sentence or not. It might be something like Shmita, the laws of the seventh year, and Yovel Jubilee. Basmanim, it's almost as if you have to understand that he, he, he writes in, in, in truncated clipped language. It could be saying they're timeless. They're of time and they are beyond time. Rabbi Julian says they are in, interconnected in time because of the mitiachasim zelazeh. But it's hard to know if mitiachasim zelazeh, which means are interrelated to another yachas's relationship, is related to the zmanim or not. But something like these concepts are related to one another. And they are, um, they are indistinguishable from the notion of time itself. Like the sun and the moon, in the universe. Um, hold on one second, because I had a note about that. I wanted to share with you. Um, so when he mentions the sun and the moon and uh, the land, he's winking at those readers who know um, Kabbalah, well, so there's a concept in Kabbalah that is referred to by the, um, by the Rashi Teva, by the acronym of Ashan, Ayin Shin Nun, okay? Ayin, Olam, world, uh, Shin, Shana, time, year, and Nun, Nefesh, soul, right? That the physical world, the, the, um, metaphysical concept of time and our place in it are brought together in a mystical trio, right? And it's both, those words are both chosen because of what they represent, but also everything is linked in the rabbinic tradition. Ashan is also related to the, the, the Ashan means smoke, the, the, the smoke of the, of the offerings that would go up to the heavens, as if when we did our rituals down on earth, it, we, we are linking space, time, and person, and all that is ascending to God in Ashan. Okay, so um, these are the three dimensions in the Kabbalah that that shape the finite world, and we in, we we harness them when we do the korbanot. So when he says um, that that the that the that the shmita and yovel are 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 a, are, a, are are a linked unit, it's like the other powerful linked units in our tradition, like the Kabbalah's linking of the sun and the moon um, and the uh, and the world. Which is which is related to this notion of Ashan, Uchmo. No idea what he's saying here. But something like, and like Israel and humanity and the souls. Right? So maybe he's saying something like um like another linkage of the Jewish people, and that's particular, and Hadam, all of humanity and the souls that they share, right? So he's a very proud particularist like the jews are a special people and the land of israel is a special is a is a special land but he's not a elitist or and he's not jingoistic and he doesn't 
um, think that all the other nations have no place in God's world. So there's Yisrael, there's Adam, and somehow they and their nefashot bind them all together. Um, I try to think if it makes sense to push um, one more line. One second, please. Uh, Can I ask a question? Yeah, please. I don't understand if the mitzvahsim zelazeh is the shmita mitzvahset leyovel or the shmita leyovel mitzvahsim lozmanim. What's um, sorry? No, great question. I don't have a good answer. I really don't. Right. So it, it, it seems that the syntax of the of the of the of the sentence is that the things that are mitzvahes zelazeh, which again for those of you who reminder that are relating to one another who are interwoven are indeed Shemitah and Yobel, as if to say that they're not just individual laws out there. They, they form a body politic together and they are maybe the trio is Shemitah, Yobel and Zmanim are a trio in the same way that Levana, Chama and Olam are a trio and Yisrael and Dam and the Fashod are a trio. So the seven year cycle, the 50 year cycle and all of time are related to one another, just like the moon, nighttime, the sun, daytime, and all of earth are a trio, and the Jewish people, and humanity, and all of the spiritual world is a trio. And 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 the and they're to understand any one of them individually, you have to understand them as part of the larger trio. Right. Um, let's pause here because I I wanted I know this is the middle of, middle of people's work day perhaps, and I want to honor that. It's kind of a lunch lunch hour thing. When we pick up next time, which is in two weeks from today. We'll finish this um, little piece, and then um, I haven't yet chosen what the, the next piece of his text we're going to study together, but hopefully this gives you a taste of the richness, of the, of the interestingness of, of this text, and, um, and make, it's making you maybe ache um, for a freshly picked fruit uh, or to be on, uh, on a kibbutz in the land of Israel and be reminded of where we came from uh, and how far we are from that place. Let's pause here. Um, have a great day. Chodesh Tov, because it is Rosh Chodesh Cheshvan, and it's a delight to be studying with all of you. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.